As we read, remember, we're reading God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Well, we're uh, coming in on the home stretch of our study of the book of Acts. We have just a couple months left. If that strikes you as funny, it's, we've been going through it the whole year and about 10 or so weeks left, I think, of our study here. And what we've been seeing throughout this book of Acts is that uh, th this book in general, and really this passage in particular that we're looking at today, have shown us both the message of Christianity and the approach of the messengers of Christianity. So it's shown us the message, it's told us the truth, the content about the gospel message, about what it is that needs to be believed in order to follow Jesus. So we've been seeing that and we'll see that again today. But this book has also been showing us the approach. It's been showing us the way that followers of Christ might share this message with other people, the posture they'd have, the attitude they'd have, the kind of approach that they might take. And uh, some of you might think, well, gosh, what difference does the approach make? All that matters is just speak the truth. It doesn't matter how you say it, 
doesn't matter how you dress it up. It doesn't matter. Just, just speak the truth. Now, I, I appreciate where I think that sentiment comes from because a lot of times we feel like, oh, people are so mealy-mouthed and explain everything away. Just come on, just say it. But, but do you really think that approach doesn't matter? If you do, you're probably not married. <laughs> right, if you're married or if you've ever been married, you, you know that approach matters as much as the content of what you're saying, especially if the content of what you're saying is going to challenge somebody, right? Like, like just let's take the, the content, what's for dinner? Okay, imagine that's my content. There's an approach I can take that really works, like, honey, I'm uh, stopping by the store on my way home. Uh, can I get anything? What's for dinner? Right? That might be like, oh, that's well received. That's a certain approach. Right? There's the other approach that I could take as I walk in the door, right? And it's early evening. It's the, you know, what my wife calls the witching hours, um, where the kids are kind of crazy and she's kind of had it up to here. And I could walk in the door and say, what's for dinner? What did you say over there? Somebody said, uh oh. <laughs> right? Right. Because, because it's the same content, but the approach you take matters a lot. Now listen, if I don't care about actually having a relationship, if I just care about being right or making a point or having kind of a win, then it doesn't really matter, my approach. But if I actually want to have a loving relationship that's respectful, that's kind, if I want to not just win but win over someone, your approach matters a lot. And so actually what we're going to see today is, is the approach that the Apostle Paul takes in sharing the message of, the Christian, of Christianity, and, and both are significant. Um, now, chapter 17 is kind of everything we're looking at. We're going to focus on the end part of it, um, but here's kind of where we are contextually in the book of Acts. Paul had made a first missionary journey. He had traveled around the Mediterranean Sea sharing the good news of the gospel. He came back to Antioch in Jerusalem. He's now making a second missionary journey, and here's a map that we have of that missionary journey. You'll see Antioch and Jerusalem are there on the right, those are kind of the home bases. Really, Antioch is kind of the home base he's sent from. And he goes through Asia. That's modern-day Turkey. He revisits some of the churches that he interacted with there. Um, and then he has a vision that he should head over to Macedonia. And so last week in chapter 16, we looked at Paul in Philippi. That's up toward the top left is Philippi. We saw how the gospel disrupts people and specifically a few case studies of how the gospel disrupted some folks in Philippi. At the beginning of this passage in chapter 17 verse 1, it says they pass through Amphipolis, uh, Apollonia, they come to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica you see that they're up at the top left and in Thessalonica they do kind of the normal thing they do. They go into the synagogue, share the good news. Some people respond really favorably to it. Other people hate it. And the people who hate it start to threaten Paul. Paul's been staying at the house of this guy named Jason. And so they start to threaten these folks. And verse 6 is actually a great verse. Look at verse 6 and 7 in uh, chapter 17. It says, And when they could not find them, they couldn't find Paul and these uh, missionaries, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that a great line? These men have turned the world upside down. But what was it that turned the upside down? That they continued. Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
So it's their loyalty, their allegiance to Jesus as king, saying Jesus is the most important thing. That's what's turning the world upside down. I just love this idea that the world out there, who's even opposed to this message, is saying this this thing you're doing, it's it's changing everything. It it goes so opposite of how we kind of want to just keep faith to ourselves. We'll actually talk about that more in a little bit. So they're in Thessalonica. They really get run out of town. If you put the map back up, you'll see the next town they go to is Berea. And in Berea, uh, they're, they're there and uh, sharing the good news. And there's a key verse in verse 11 that says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Bereans, they're commended because they didn't just hear what Paul said, but they actually examined and said, is that really... Is that really in here? Now, I got married just a little over 15 years ago in Berean Bible Fellowship. That was the name of the church. Why would you name a church Berean? Because of this verse. Because we want to be Bereans. We want to be people who don't just listen to what I say or Seth or Josh or any other preacher we might listen to. We want to see what does God's word say. Well, the folks from Thessalonica actually follow them to Berea and try to persecute them more, and so this little team sends Paul on a trip down to Athens, and you see Athens there kind of on the boot there of Greece, and so Paul goes on to Athens. He's there by himself waiting for the rest of the team to show up, and that's what we pick up here in verse 16. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 16, and what I want to do is just kind of tell the story of Paul's interaction in Athens, make sure we understand what happened, and then I want to come back and ask what, what do we learn about Paul's approach and what do we learn about Paul's message? What about the approach to Christianity and the, the message of it? So look in verse 16. It, it, Paul's there by himself. He's hanging out. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And it says in verse 16 this. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoked is a really interesting word. It's a word that means to be spurred or to be irritated, but, but it, it's a complex word because there's part of it, it, it's like he's angry, but he's also sad. And what we're gonna see here is that as Paul kind of sees all the idolatry, right? That's what it said he saw. He saw the city was full of idols. Everywhere he goes, there's idols. There's worship to all these various gods. He sees that and he feels provoked. On one hand, he's, he's angry because he knows how wrong and dangerous and destructive idolatry is. On the other hand, he's compassionate and sympathetic and just his heart breaks because he knows that these people aren't just doing what's wrong, but they're enslaved to it. So he's wrestling through all of that stuff. It says in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I'm really struck by that. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, right? So he's very comfortable in church. He's very comfortable around the religious people and the devout persons. Those are the non-Jews who are into worshiping God. He's very comfortable there. But then it also says that he reasoned every day in the marketplace. Now think about what the marketplace in a city like Athens would have been, right? Athens is the birthplace of Greek philosophy, it, at this point, was not quite as powerful of a, of a center as Rome had become, but it was still was this key, amazing, tremendous city. I mean, there's reasons people travel thousands of miles to go see Athens still today. And the marketplace, think about this, with no technology, with no digital communication, with no phones, what would happen in the marketplace? Everything. Right? We think marketplace and we think like shopping mall. 
you know, Paul wasn't at Santan Village talking to shoppers as they entered in and out of, you know, dicks. No, in the marketplace, this is where town officials and judges would be. This is where lawyers and business people would be. This is where media and communication people would be. This is where printers and artists and craftsmen and everybody doing anything significant to the culture would be there. And it just strikes me as so interesting that Paul is equally comfortable in church and in the marketplace, in the synagogue with Jews and in the marketplace with all these people who held all these different beliefs. You know, we, we often are told by the world around us, they say, hey, that's great. You worship whatever you want, but just keep it to yourself, right? Aren't we told that? In fact, a lot of people think about the First Amendment in our country, which is saying that we should have free exercise of religion, and they've kind of truncated that to say, no, you have free exercise of worship. So you can worship however you want, but just don't bring your Christianity outside of your place of worship or your home. A, that's a misreading of the First Amendment. That's kind of on the side. But B, that's not a faithful witness, right? Paul is taking this into the marketplace. This is why we say all of life is all for Jesus. It's not just a private thing. Your faith is not just something you keep to yourself and you worship and it's just kind of this thing that you keep all by yourself. It actually is supposed to influence all of life. And so he's able to interact with this whole diverse crowd with uh, average Greeks, and then there's, it says in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, I had to look up what these folks were, <laughs> what they meant, what they believed, um, but what you see here is actually Paul's having to do some real heavy, diff, heavy lifting in terms of his reasoning with people who are very thoughtful and come from very different perspectives. So here's a description of Epicureans. Epicureans were rational hedonists, so they were, they were thoughtful, they were intentional. These are not just sort of, you know, college kids wanting to do whatever they want to do. <laughs> Hedonists. This was thoughtful people who said, you know what? We think that the gods are remote and distant. History is kind of random and meaningless. And so just do what you want. Eat and drink for tomorrow you'll die. That's kind of an Epicurean sort of philosophy. Now that's very different from Stoics. And Stoics were more like rational disciplinarians. These were folks that thought there's a kind of life force that controls everything and it's in everything, a kind of pantheism. So everything has these kind of tastes of the divine. Almost the kind of Eastern religion is kind of a stoic sort of thing. So some of you even grew up in kind of traditional Asian cultures that has elements of kind of stoicism to it where it's, there's, it's very thoughtful but it's very disciplined, it's very rigorous. So do your duty and be mindful. Right, I think about the, the Epicureans, that first group, kind of being like the college professors who are sort of secular agnostics and go, hey, just do what you want. There's no God. The Stoics are more like the young professionals who are all into mindfulness and transcendental meditation and productivity. Kind of if some of you know Tim Ferriss, he's a popular author and podcaster and he really digs the Stoics. He gets totally into this. So Paul's comfortable around all these different kinds of people. Now it says in verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? And I love that word babbler because the original word for that means a seed picker. A seed picker, it literally is referring to a bird picking up seeds, right? So some of you have this when you reseed your lawn or you see a lawn kind of being reseeded and all the birds come and they, you know, look, look up here for a second. They pick, 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 
pick, pick, right? And there's no real like order to it. It's not like they go pick, 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 pick. It's just random picking, right? And that's kind of what they're saying. They're saying, you're just a babbler. You're just a seed picker. It, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a knock on them. They're saying, you're not intelligent. You're not intellectual. You, you're just kind of the secondhand pick, 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 pick. We, we don't even think we buy what you're saying. Other people, it says, said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Maybe he's preaching about these other gods from other places because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. So he's holding his own enough with all this very different kinds of people, very different kinds of setting, that they actually say, come to the Areopagus. Come to the place where everyone just talks about ideas all the time. We want to hear it. Come. Hey, Paul, would you give a TED Talk? <laughs> sure, I'd love to. And, and, and Luke, I think, gives a little bit of a jab at them. In verse 21, Luke, as he's writing this, he says, now the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's his way of saying, who's the seed picker? You guys are the seed pickers. So Paul comes to give his TED Talk in the midst of the Areopagus, and here's what he says. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, right? He's walked around and seen the whole city full of idols. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Apparently, Paul had been walking around. He'd been, he saw this, you know, this statue and this temple to Zeus and this one to Epaphrodite and this one to Mars and this one to all these different people. And, and, and then he saw one that said, to, an, to the unknown God, which was kind of like, cross your fingers just in case we missed one. Right? And, and this unknown God was kind of like, hey, there's a chance there might be a God out there that we haven't acknowledged, and so let's just have an altar to them just in case we missed it. And Paul says, you know what, this is perfect. I'm going to use that as an opportunity to tell them about God. They don't have any concept of God the way I know him. They don't know anything about this, so I'm going to say, hey, you know what, let me tell you about that. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So that's what Paul does. He stands there and he tells people about God. He tells them that there's one God who made everything. He doesn't live in a temple built by hands. He doesn't need anything. He gives all men life and breath and everything else. He says he overlooked the times of ignorance in the past, but, but now because he has put you in every place that he's put you so that you would seek him, he's now inviting you to repent, to turn from him, and turn to him. And he has risen Jesus to give evidence of this, right? So Paul gives this whole talk. It's fascinating in this talk, actually. There's a, there's a point in verse 28 where Paul actually quotes from two of their poets. So Paul's like, I don't know if they're going to connect with Leviticus, but here's what you too said. Here's what Bono said. Here's what the prophet Madonna said, right? And so he, he, he relates to them and he connects with them and he tells them this message and you see at the end, look at down to verse 32. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. So one of the people that is like a key leader there at the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. 
This is an amazing thing. This messenger of Christianity is invited to speak at the most influential place. This, this actually reminds me of, of Tim Keller, who I like to quote a lot. He's a pastor from New York. He was invited to come and to give a talk at Google. And I think, like, that's pretty cool. What would you say? What would you say if you had a chance to give a TED Talk? If you had a chance to speak at Google, what would you do? So you go, I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to speak. Okay, great. But what if you were going to talk to your neighbor? What if you were going to talk to one of the parents on your kid's team? What if you were going to talk to somebody at the gym or somebody that you met that didn't know Christ? What, what would you say? Not just what would you say, but how would you approach it? Now, now what's fascinating is that Paul, in his approach here, he, his approach is dealing in a pre-Christian environment, right? Nobody has ever heard of Jesus, and so he's got to kind of lay a foundation of people that never heard of this. We are increasingly in a post-Christian environment, right? Post-Christian is like people used to believe that. They used to think that. They used to be involved in that. And here's an amazing statistic that I saw from the Pew Research Center, and I could give you a lot more information on how they determine who falls in what categories or whatever. But when Pew looks at post-Christian Americans, what percentage of Americans could be considered post-Christian? Meaning maybe they don't believe in God, maybe they're agnostic or atheistic, maybe they don't think the Bible makes any sense, maybe they've never made a commitment to Jesus, maybe they haven't come to church in the last year, maybe all these different things that could add up to someone being counted as post-Christian. In 2013, the percentage of people post-Christian in our country was 37%, all right? So four years ago, 37%. Do you know what it is in 2017? It went from 37% to 48. So almost half the country could fall in this post-Christian category. And the younger you are, the higher percentage that is. So, so listen, this actually matters that you listen to this, those of you who are followers of Jesus, if you care about your neighbors, if you care about the people you work with meeting Christ. Listen, you've experienced the forgiveness of Christ. You've experienced the love of Jesus. You've experienced the new power of the Holy Spirit. You've experienced the joy that transcends your circumstances. You've experienced the kind of good news from Jesus that even when all things are falling apart, you say, God, blessed be your name, right? You know the hope that exists in the power of the gospel. And don't you want people to know that? Those of you who are followers of Christ, and by the way, that's who I'm going to talk to for the next few minutes. Those of you who are kind of not in that camp, I think you'll enjoy listening in. But I'm going to just talk to you Christians for a minute, to us Christians for a minute. We need to be faithful witnesses. And so I think there's things we can learn from Paul in pre-Christian Athens that translate to us in post-Christian Arizona. And it begins with his approach. What is Paul's approach? Well, the first part of his approach is seeing. It's seeing. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul is walking around just seeing, just observing, just noticing. Now, one of the things that happens when you're familiar with a place, when you live in a place, you stop noticing stuff, right? This is why, like, someone will come into your house, and the first thing they'll notice is the crooked picture, but you don't even see it. 
because it's just so familiar. Well, Paul's in this new place, and he's got a missionary mindset. He's got a missionary thought process. He's going, okay, I need to see this place. Can I really see it? And so he has that kind of missionary God filter on. I, I was listening to a podcast. There's this podcast I love called How I Built This. They interview these different entrepreneurs and innovators and different people who have built companies and products and different stuff like that. It's really cool. And uh, they were interviewing the guys that started Instagram. Instagram in two years went from being nothing to bought by Facebook for a billion dollars. Two years. And what these guys said was that at the beginning of Instagram, there were a lot of different other apps that were allowing you to share photos of where you were and different things real time. And uh, one of the founders was on a vacation. He was walking with his wife and he, she took this picture. He's like, hey, you ought to share that. And she's like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't look like all those professional photos that like some people take. And he went, aha. And the key to Instagram became not just that you could share photos, but that Instagram had all these filters that could make your photos look professional. And that's why people fell in love with it, right? And I just kept thinking, what if Instagram had a God filter on it where you could kind of walk around with your phone and look in your phone and through it, you could see things the way God sees them. Wouldn't that be amazing? You know you do he's called the Holy Spirit. And if we're connected to God in a, in a thoughtful, intentional way, we, we can begin to see things new. Do you see the community around you? Do you see the people around you? Or are they the crooked picture you've just never noticed? Because it's so familiar. One of my mentors is a guy named Steve. He pastors a church in Texas. He's been there for over 30 years. And he said every five years he goes away and he has kind of an intentional time of seeking the Lord and asking the Lord, Lord, do you want me to be the pastor of this church for the next five years? And God has continually told him yes. And so when that happens, he then drives back into town and he the whole time is just imagining he's never seen it before. He imagines he's the new pastor from another place that's been called to be the pastor of this town. And so he drives around and he looks at the schools and he figures out where the stores are and he kind of just does this whole thing. He gets to the church and he starts walking through and looking at the brochures, you know, and he walks through and he just thinks to himself, I bet I could do a better job than the last guy that was here, right? And he, he goes through this whole exercise and the reason he does that is he goes, I want to have fresh eyes. Paul's approach began with seeing. Do you see the people around you? So many of them, they feel invisible. They feel unnoticed. And we have an opportunity to really see them. So he sees them. Seeing is the first part of his approach. The second part is feeling. The things that he sees cause a reaction, right? How, how was he feeling? He was feeling, as it says in verse 16, provoked in spirit. Do you see it? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I told you already, that's a very interesting word, right? He's angry on one hand because of the idolatry and how it dishonors God. On the other hand, he's compassionate because of the slavery he knows they're in. And he feels this provoked feeling. He's, he's, he doesn't just go, huh, interesting, a lot of idols, that's too bad. But because he sees with that God filter, he feels what God feels. 
And, and, and this is, gosh, I just, I, I pray for myself, I pray for us that we could see the way God sees and feel the way God feels. I got a text the other day from Matthew Brazelton, one of our pastors who's on sabbatical, and he's spending a week or so in San Francisco with his family, they're sightseeing and doing all this stuff, and he sent me a text uh, with this picture the other day. He said this, I used, I used my first all-gender restroom today. And he sent that picture. And I wrote back, was it a single? And he wrote, all stalls, not floor to ceiling, just normal. I passed men and women washing their hands, leaving stalls, entering. He said it was strangely quiet, like everyone knew it was wrong. And I wrote back, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That, that's the beginning of Romans 1. Now, Paul continues in Romans 1 as he's watching the effects of idolatry by saying this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is amazing. In, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing idolatry and its effects. He's saying, listen, if you don't worship the creator and instead worship created things, here's his description. Futile in your thinking, foolish heart darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, dishonoring their bodies, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, right? That is strong language. That's the truth of what idolatry does to you. And so as I've been kind of thinking about this, and I sent that text to him before I was even thinking about Romans, and then as I'm studying this in Acts 17, I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. How does a guy, Paul, who believes that about Romans 1, how is he going to speak to people who are totally engulfed in that kind of life? That's an interesting question. Because if that's what you believe it is, what are you going to say? Are you going to walk up and go, here's your TED talk, here's your moment, you're at the Areopagus, you're at Google, here's your chance. You know, as I was walking around town today, I saw a lot of idols, and the Ten Commandments say you shouldn't have idols. You're a fool. You're dark. You're dirty. You're disgusting. Repent, you vile creeps. Right? That's what you might think someone who believed Romans 1 would say. But that's not even close to what he does. See, Paul sees here with that God filter. He sees the way God sees it. And, and he feels the way God feels, which means he doesn't just feel angry at the rebellion. He feels compassion at the slavery. And so he doesn't go in and just blast them. Instead, he feels that, and then he tries to connect with them. See, our approach should be an approach of seeing and feeling and connecting. Paul is focused on connecting. Notice his kind of respectful tone 
as he begins, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Hey, that's good. You're thinking about spiritual things. Great. I passed along. I observed the objects of your worship. I found this altar. You know what? Here's this altar I heard about. Can I tell you about what that points to? I mean, it's just amazing his tone. It's amazing the way he inhabits the way they're actually thinking, right? He actually then, as I mentioned, goes on to quote one of their prophets, right? He, he doesn't quote the Old Testament. They wouldn't be familiar with that. They didn't know that. They have no frame of reference for that. They wouldn't respect that. But he does say, hey, here's these poets that you know, and do you know what? God has sprinkled these little crumbs of truth all throughout the world that denies him. And if Christians have their eyes open as we listen to music, as we watch movies, as we experience media, if we have our eyes open, we can see it. Like, like, like here's an example. Beauty and the Beast. I don't know if there is a more beautiful portrayal of the new heavens and the new earth than the most recent Beauty and the Beast movie. And tons of Christians wouldn't go see it because there was a six-tenths of a second inclination about a same-sex attraction. And we all focused on that, right? All the, all the Christian world was ablaze about that. And, and that's an appropriate thing to maybe not want your kids to experience. I get it. I'm with you on that, right? I, I wanted to read all I could before I had my kids go watch it. I get that. But you know what I've not seen a blog post or a Twitter thing about or heard anything about? It's how when the beast comes back to life and everything is made new, it's like when Jesus returns. It's beautiful. It's spectacular. It's glorious. It's hopeful. It's incredible. Why wouldn't we leverage that and say, everyone should go see Beauty and the Beast. And you want to see what it really points to? It really points to Jesus. That's what Paul does here. That's his approach. Rather than just critique everything and blast everything, he connects. Here's what commentator Daryl Bach says. He says, Paul knows his message and the mentality of the people he evangelizes. Too many Christians know their own message but understand far too little about how and why others think as they do. I, the, the easiest place I see this is with millennials. Everyone has an opinion about millennials. Everyone can critique millennials. Can you connect with them, though? Right, you could give a 15-hour TED Talk about millennials. Can you connect with them? Do they want relationship with you? Do they want to hear what you have to say because you've loved them enough and you've understood how and why they think the way they think, right? It's one thing for us to sit here comfortably in Arizona and look at the picture of the same gender restroom and go, California is the land of nuts. But what if you were a missionary to San Francisco? What are you going to do? What's your approach? What's it going to be? Because here's the thing, and this is why this matters, is because San Francisco and New York and L.A. and Miami, do you know where all those places are showing up next? Phoenix. Those are the hotbeds of culture. It's all coming here. 
And we can just go, well, when it comes here, I'm going to be mad. Okay? Paul was mad, right? His spirit was provoked. He saw this and went, ugh, I can't stand this. This is so damaging. But he didn't stop there, nor did he then rant about it. Instead, he figured out, how do I connect with people? How do I show them the love of Christ? How do I speak in language they understand so that if they're offended, because they will be, they're offended by the message I have and not by me being offensive. So the question that comes out of this is, does this mean Paul caved to the pressure of the culture? Did Paul go soft? Did he water it down? Did he kind of lighten it up? Okay, gospel light for the Athenians because I don't know if they can handle it. No, not at all. So let's ask next, what is Paul's message? And it's interesting about this because uh, I, I... there was a girl on my soccer team this spring. I coached soccer, and I gave all the kids like a made-up award at the end. And there was one girl on the team, I gave her the award, the Velvet Hammer. You know, she was just this sweet, skinny girl. Like, a lot of times she would, like, come to practice, seriously, in jeans and, like, a dress. And she would, like, just look around. And she was sweet as the day is long, and then the ball would come near her, and she would just crush it. Right, and she'd like knock into people, and like she was the velvet hammer. Like she looked like, oh, she is, and she's boom, and she just rock you, right? <laughs> like that's totally what it was like. And that's that's what Paul is here. Paul is connecting because he wants to give the message. And the message is significant, and the message is hard-hitting, and the message is confrontational. Listen, if you get the approach exactly right, that doesn't mean you're going to win everybody, because at the end of what happens here, there's still people who go, this is ridiculous, I don't want anything to do with it. There's still people who go, yeah, I don't know, tell me more. And then there's a few that follow. So get this, it's not that the approach sort of solves everything, but the approach makes it where what people can really wrestle with is the actual message. So what's the message? Whether you're a Christian or not today, you need this message. Here's Paul's message in this talk, this TED talk he gives here at Athens. His first point is this, there is one God and creator. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. There is one God who made the world and everything in it. This is going exactly against what these folks believed. They believed in a pantheon. They believed in all of these different gods. And all these different gods played different roles. And all of these different gods, many of them were created or born. Paul says, no, this one God, this true God, this unknown God, is the one who has made everything. The world and everything in it. Second point Paul makes is that God needs nothing. God needs nothing. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Paul's surrounded by temples. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's surrounded by people who are constantly afraid because they're having to try to manipulate or control or do some sort of sacrifice to try to get the gods on their side. And Paul says, God doesn't need that. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need your service. 
He doesn't need anything. This is a God who is transcendent and glorious. By the way, this contradicts what is sometimes an idea I'll hear out there where people say, you know, God created because he needed somebody to love. That's why he created the world. He, He needed people to love. As though there were some sort of deficiency in God that wasn't met until we were created. No, no, no. God was perfectly happy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lots of love happening within the triune Godhead, and God creates out of the overflow of his heart, out of the overflow of his love, not because he needs us, because he wants to share his love with us. There's one God and creator. God needs nothing, but here's that amazing part. God wants relationship. Yes, God is transcendent and glorious, but he's also imminent and personal. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Look at that. That's Paul saying God is so involved in every person's life that he's determined the time period you live in, and the place you live in. This is not a God who's distant, who's off, who just kind of turned the watch on and stepped back. No, this is a God who's involved. And why is he involved like this? He's involved, it says in verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is incredible. Paul's saying there's a God. He made everything, and he doesn't need you. He's transcendent and glorious, but he wants you because he's imminent and he's personal. And he made sure that you were born at this moment and that you lived in this moment because he wanted you to find him. He wanted you to know him, and he's not that far off if you'll open your eyes. God wants relationship. He says next, God sets the terms of this relationship. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, listen, Athenians, I know what you're gonna wanna do. You're gonna wanna create stones and statues and temples to this God. Because you're going to think, oh, if we're going to have a relationship, we got to relate to him like we relate to all these other gods. And he says, no, 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 no. God sets the terms of this relationship. He doesn't need you to make him in your image. He's made you in his image. All right, one person said that God created man in his image and man has been returning the favor ever since. I heard this story about Max Scherzer. Some of you know that name. He's a pitcher for the Nationals. Unbelievable pitcher. And um, he has one eye that looks like a Siberian husky and another eye that's like deep dark brown. Really cool two color, like look him up. You'll be like, that looks photoshopped, it's real. And I read a thing that said when he was a kid, every animal he would draw, he drew with two different colored eyes. Why? Because he'd make the animals in his image. And I think that's what all of us do with God. Well, God, I'm like this. Well, God, the, the, the kind of God I would worship would be like this. Well, I would never worship a God who like that. 
God sets the terms of this. And what are the terms, he says in verse 30? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God's been patient with you. God has waited for you to have me come talk to you, Paul says. So now repent. Now you've heard. Turn to him. Trust him. And then he concludes saying this, God made, judge, God made Jesus judge by raising him. There's a person you're going to have to answer to, Paul says, and it's Jesus, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, listen, there is one God, and you are going to stand before him because he has been risen from the dead, Jesus. This is an amazing thing, right? Paul's saying there's a judgment coming. But here's what's amazing about this judgment. This judgment is coming from Jesus, the judge, who on the cross experienced judgment. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the wonder of the gospel. This is not the kind of traditional approach to God that just says, hey, watch out, God's going to crush you. Nor is it the kind of modernized, mealy-mouthed God who just loves everything about you and accepts you no matter what everything. The, the truth of the gospel is Jesus saying, I was crushed for you so that you could be accepted. I was judged so that you wouldn't have to experience judgment. And so you will stand before Jesus. But there is an opportunity in the meantime, if you will repent, to have life in Jesus. Because that's why he had to be raised, is because he was dead. And he was dead for us. That's the message. There is a God who made everything. He doesn't need you, but he wants relationship with you. And he wants it so badly that he sent his own son to die and rise in your place. And you will stand before him. You will give an account of whether you trusted him, whether you knew him. So trust him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this good news of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that it would uh, move us to be people who experience your grace personally, not just theoretically, but in ways that transform and renew us. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.